And so tonight, it's my honor, my privilege to call up to join me here on this platform, to call up our friend Corey Broussard so he can share his grace story and his testimony. Could you make him feel welcome as he comes? We're just going to have a seat. We don't have two uh, podiums that match. Otherwise, we'd be standing here like two heads of state behind two matching podiums, but we don't have that. But we do have two chairs that match. And Sister Cheryl, Madam Secretary, was kind enough to uh, allow us to steal all of the furniture in her office so that we could set this up tonight. So we're just going to kick back. We're going to hear his story. We're going to see what God wants to do. Everybody okay with that? And at the end of the t our time together, whenever he's through, I'm not putting a time on it, whenever he's through, we want to stop. We want to have some Q&A. There might be some questions in the congregation, and that's okay. We want that. Anytime Jesus' disciples stopped asking questions, he would ask them a question he knew they could not answer, so they would begin asking questions again. So questions don't intimidate us. We welcome them. It's an opportunity for revelation. It's an opportunity for things to unfold. And we don't have all the answers, but we're in the presence of a God that does. And so, without further ado, my friend, share your story with us. We can't wait to hear it. Thank you. Um, so, I probably will be reading a lot of this because there's bits and pieces that I do remember. There's things that are very... Um, ingrained in my mind and there's things that I just kind of want to keep it in sequence so there'll probably be a lot of reading so please forgive my lack of speaking etiquette by not looking you in the face I'm looking at you now so let that count <laughs> all right so um back in 1975 yes I am that old good god I was, I was born um into a beautiful family I remember in it was in Port Arthur, Port Arthur yeah Port Arthur Texas um I was born into a family, the second of two children. Um, it was a beautiful family. I remember my family being heavily involved in church. Um, and the church at that time, um, there was a lot of core memories that, that drew a foundation for me during that time. Um, I remember parents being heavily involved. I believe they were part of the youth ministry. I remember deliverances happening. At this time, they were out on the, they were going out in the streets and ministering to people and pulling people in and there was deliverance as a scene right in front of me at that point mom was not concerned about getting me out of the way she wanted me to see the hand of God working I remember mom growing up I remember mom was a prayer intercessor like I mean she would go in um, and I remember being woke up many times in the middle of the night as a child here from her praying first I didn't understand I would go in there and try to comfort her because she was so intensely interceding that I thought she was, she was in pain. I thought she was going to die. Um, and I remember those moments. I remember dad reading the Bible to us. We would have prayer time, all that they would call us in. And I don't care what she was doing, you better be in there on your knees on the couch. We had our spots and mom made sure we were there praying. And dad would read with all of this energy and all of this um, excitement we used to laugh about it and make fun of him then. But now that I look back, those memories, those memories last because it, it let me know that there was, it created an interest 
in what he was saying. Um, at a very young age, I received the Holy Ghost in Sunday school. I was baptized at that same church. Um, but it wasn't long after that the enemy started after my family. Um, I remember some situations happening. Don't know the whole details of the story, but I remember that um, there was a quite a intense church hurt, and my mother left. We ended up changing churches at that point. Um, so we moved into a whole other town, whole other um, neighborhood church and everything. Well, Mom found the church first, and we kind of went after. Um, but it wasn't very long after moving there that um, I was introduced to same-sex interactions by a, an older male in the neighborhood. Um, at that point, my family was very reserved about what they spoke about. So I didn't even know enough to know. I knew it was wrong because we were hiding, but I didn't even know enough to know to even understand what was going on. So more than anything, I was confused about what I was feeling, why I was feeling it. And at that point, being the age that I was, how to make it happen again because that was immediately how my brain began to click over those circumstances. Um, it was the only interaction that I had had with, with friends. Uh, we didn't really, we kind of stayed away from people at the first church that we was at. Um, so this is my first interaction with friends, so I didn't, I didn't know a whole, whole lot. I knew it was wrong, as I said, because we were hiding. Um, but not too long after that, a, a friend of our family, I began to work with them um, and he started molesting me. Um, this turned into years of abuse, um, being held down, like I'm talking intense. It was never brutal. It was never um, like physically attacked, but being held down and forced to, to do whatever he chose at that moment. Um, it left many years of continued abuse and horrible decisions. By the time I graduated, I transferred to a, another church that was out of out of the town that we were in. I still lived with my parents at that moment, but um, I remember singing and having incredibly encou incredible encounters in service. Services where God would completely take over, and we would just be on our face before Him. But deep down, that broken child was still screaming, "I need to talk." Looking back now, I see it. I can see where it was trying to reach out, where it was trying to make sense of, of what had happened and how it was affecting me at that point. I felt if I denied the feelings and the hurt long enough, it would go away. Or if I didn't admit it, I, I, I'd spiritual warfare all day. The devil is a liar, I am not that. I felt if I, did not de if I denied it long enough, then I was, it, it really wasn't real. And I remember at that point I was waiting tables at a restaurant, couldn't even find my way to do anything. I was so afraid of being gay that I could not do what God had called me to do. I couldn't even live a peaceful life. I spent countless hours. I would work the morning shift and I would go lock myself in the youth room and turn on music and just lay there and beg God. I just wanted him to take, take the desires. I didn't understand. I didn't want it. 
But I just begged and begged and pleaded with God, just you take the desires from me, change me. I don't want to be who I was. I didn't want to have to face another desire that I abhorred. But I never understood that just because the temptation comes doesn't mean I'm not free. And just because the enemy throws it at me, it doesn't mean I am that. There's a difference between the temptation of the person and identity of a person. And oftentimes the two are polar opposites. Because of not dealing with the trauma, continuing on, and hurt, I couldn't heal. And when you do not heal, you continue to repeat cycles that are damaging. Because of lack of healing, I ended up making poor decisions that caused myself and a lot of others around me some deep hurt. But ultimately, looking back, the enemy's goal was to separate me from anyone that had anything to do with the one source that could change it. And he succeeded in that moment. After th so these things happened, church hurt and shame continued its assault on my life, and I ended up in a place where I stopped going to church altogether. I remember being crushed and being in public, and I would see people that I prayed with, people that I'd worshipped with, and people I had I loved and prayed for, would literally get up and leave the establishment when I walked in. I would, they would pass me, and I would try to speak, and they never even acknowledged that I existed. I remember them leaving leaving restaurants or leaving one one in particular was leaving a clothing store and made the comment that they couldn't be in the same establishment with someone dealing with what I dealt with um, so upon leaving church I immediately began to live the same sex attraction lifestyle and I remember that being one of the deepest hurts I endured because everything I knew was now gone it was something I wasn't welcome to participate in because of what I dealt with. And everyone that I knew, save two people, they were gone. So I went completely to the left of what I had been trying to pursue my entire life, completely to the left. You see, you will act out in private what has been hurt publicly if it isn't addressed. Yes. When it isn't given a voice and when it isn't allowed to heal, when you don't take the time to grieve when you've been hurt, you will begin to act out in ways you never thought you would. I quick, quickly learned how to act like nothing mattered. And I learned quickly how to defend myself in an attempt to safeguard getting crushed again. You couldn't tell me nothing. I would get in your face in a second. And I felt like that was my way of protecting myself. But all of this happened about the time I had started college. Um, I went into a deep depression and I was just completely lost, had, hadn't, didn't have anybody to have contact with, didn't know where to go, didn't even know how to start. I knew which way I was, I wasn't going back to the church. No, thank you. But I didn't even know how to exist outside of church. I had a full paid scholarship for voice and vocal education, which I don't remember how many semesters I went through, but it, it took a huge hit due to do much drinking and partying. I ended up losing that scholarship completely and flunked out of school, switched over to business law, and um, didn't even make it a full semester in that one. Um, I just kind of went, went crazy. There was a lot of drinking and partying. After a while of continuing partying and living it up, I thought I moved to Houston to follow a relationship. There I ended up working at a club on weekend nights. I walked into a club. I was like, I want to bartend. 
walked into a club, the guy was like, be here tonight. I showed up that night and it was one of the biggest parties that they'd ever had. Bro, it was insane, stupid. I'm sitting there shocked because they put me on the edge of the dance floor my first night. And I'm like, just getting slaughtered. And the stuff that I seen was shocking. Ray, being raised in church, you, some of the stuff you see was just like, you kidding me right now? Like this is actually going on. At that place, um, there were some regulars that always hung out at the bar. Um, cocaine was introduced at that, at, at that. And here's how naive I was. I went in to wash my hands and the guy followed me and he was like, you partying? Well, I'm all excited. Yeah, I party. And he pulls out a bag of cocaine. I was so naive, I didn't even know what it was or what to do with it. But he gave me a hit of it and it was, ended up being pure cane from Cuba. And I was instantly addicted. Um, I spent years high all day, just one, one bump after another and taking pills to sleep at night just to get up and do it again until I had a good friend from our hometown that showed up. He drove all the way to Houston one day, kicked in the door where we were all hanging out, and he told me I was going back home with him. And I was like, I'm not going anywhere. He was like, I tell you what. He said, you can give up the cocaine, and you can come with me now, or I'll beat you senseless and drag you back to Beaumont, where we came from. So I went back, <laughs> obviously, because it could have easily happened. <laughs> so I went back and never intended and an understanding wasn't helping matters um, because we weren't dealing with the trauma we weren't dealing with the reason that i was doing what i was doing so self-abuse at that point began i've been popping pills until i couldn't even hold my body up i didn't use cocaine at that point because the person i stayed with was a nurse and they were very aware of what i was doing um but in the same sense they were providing pills so I would pop Xanax until I literally couldn't hold my body up. I remember my sister showing up uh, to feed me because I hadn't ate in days one time and I couldn't even sit up or hold my body up enough to be able to eat. Um, I spent many nights at clubs and have, having many extremely casual sexual encounters. See, by now, by the grace of God, I had came off of cocaine, but I replaced it and began drinking extremely heavy and taking heavy amounts of pills. Um, I got a job at, at a casino, horse, horse racetrack and casino, and um, at that point we were doing Xanax, me and a bunch of my friends, and there was a young girl there who come to find out she really didn't like me, didn't know, but she, I bought Xanax from her, and I've told this story before in a smaller setting, I bought Xanax from her, I bought 12 of them, and um, took the first one, I don't remember anything else. I worked all night long and piecing stories together because it was a small town in Vinton. It was a small town, everybody knew everybody. So after piecing stories together and what I can remember, I worked the rest of the night and when I got off, I left. I was so messed up. I sat at the bar, tried to have a couple of drinks on top of what I'd already taken. I backed out, slammed into somebody's truck and just took off. I never even knew that I hit the vehicle. That's how messed up I was. I left. And the road outside of there, there was these eight-foot ditch, ditches at that point. Um, I went off the road and parked that park perfectly in an eight-foot ditch. Called, I, remember, I do remember calling the um, wrecker, and he came and pulled it out, let me go. Um, gave him a fake check, like I didn't have the money, 
and it's not funny, but I mean, th at this point, it was like uh, there was just there was there was no hose barred. He pulled me out and let me go. I went down the road, not even a mile, and they had a a driveway to go into a store that was probably big enough to fit three dually trucks. I missed the driveway completely and slammed into a culvert. Uh, again, a guy pulled me out and let me go. I left there and went to the casino. I think I drank till about three or four o'clock in the morning. Um, I don't remember anything after that point. No, I'm, I'm sorry. When I went home, the way our road went was it, it came to a dead end. Well, at the dead end, there was about eight or nine foot wall of rock that a railroad track was on. I never even stopped and just slammed into the rocks. Our neighbor was leaving for work. He pulled me out, let me go. And I um, went, got home. And the next day, I get woke up by my mother throwing water in my face. So I didn't live with her at that point, but my sister had called her because she couldn't get me to open the door. Um, when she woke up the next morning, she went outside and seen the car, which after I parked that car, it never started again. The entire right side of that car was ripped off. Like it was, it was, the car was done. It's totally totaled. Never, st but my mom woke me up after long story short, I, I left, we got in a big argument and I left and it turns out I had taken nine of those pills. And come to find out later, she did not even sell me Xanax. She sold me horse tranquilizers. So I had taken nine horse tranquilizers and was drinking for hours on top of it. There is absolutely no reason that I should even be functioning. God kept me in that, and I knew at that point that he kept me, but I was not at a point to where I could even address the idea of healing. I didn't even know that I needed to heal. Like at that point, it was just like, I've just got to get through life. I was furious that it happened, but I was more furious that it got caught. Like I just wanted to live my life and do what I wanted to do. Um, lost my spot on that. Um, so after that incident, I started crystal meth with one of my friends. We would ride to work and crush up crystal meth on a CD case and just get blitzed. Head to work, bartend all night, and then go home and crash. We would continue throughout the night and then we would go out and party until I passed out most nights. The time off of cocaine didn't last because I took crystal meth, which is extensively more intense. Um, I would spend days high, I remember that, days. And when I decided to sleep, I would leave work and head to the local bar and just drink enough to get to sleep. Um, in Hurricane Katrina 2005, me and my roommates evacuated and we moved to Houston. Surprisingly, of all places, Houston is where, and I'll say this, God delivered me from crystal meth and cocaine. I was not even trying to pursue him at that point. Because I, I, it, was, it was weird. I was still doing it, and, and I got up one day, and I was like, I just don't want this anymore. Um, I had prayed. I, I still knew how to pray. I still knew that God was intentionally pursuing me. Um, but he, he did that completely because I never had withdrawals. I never had another desire to do it again. They, once you've done it and you come off of it and you try to go back, you never get the same high again. So I had tried it once or twice after that, and I was just done with it. But I replaced it with drinking, and I mean heavy drinking. Um, 
I remember there was an incident. We went to a club, and there was three of us. And when we left, I never drove. There was always one designated driver, and he had to, had one drink. Um, he was so messed up, he was throwing out the window, throwing up out the window. So I ended up driving, and I'm heading down the five-lane highway, 59 in Houston. And literally every lane on that highway crossed. And I, I didn't know where I was. I didn't know how I got there. I don't know how we got home. But I, I know that at that moment we had been, I mean, we were, we were totally messed up. So many relationships later, I couldn't understand why I couldn't be satisfied. Um, why nothing I invested in emotionally ever lasted, which, which drove to more drinking. Although at this time I was off pills and meth and I worked steadily, I lived six days a week in the gym. I was hurting more than ever. And every weekend we spent getting obliterated. I eventually moved back to my hometown um, and I entered into a mentally abusive and toxic relationship and continued drinking. Uh, a lot of the toxic traits turned into telling me I would never be anything. I would always have to have someone to take care of me because I could never support myself and I couldn't handle life on my own. So this led to continued drinking um, and an extremely promiscuous lifestyle. I remember in a huge fight we were having, I was yelling, I didn't even realize at that moment how prophetic my words were. Um, it was always a jealousy thing, and I, I, I told him, I was like, I'm going to tell you one thing, you don't ever have to worry about me, me being with anyone again, because when this is over, when this trashy piece of a relationship is over, I'm done. I'm going back to church, and I'll never be with another person again. I didn't even realize it was two years later, um, was sitting at home most of the time, me and my dad and my sister would sit at a table and play cards and drink. I would drink myself to sleep. We always played music, but sometimes there would be gospel mix in there. Um, so we're sitting there playing card games. All of us are drunk out of our minds. And I remember it was a William McDowell song. I didn't even tell you what happened, but I ended up bent over that table speaking in tongues for literally 30 or 40 minutes. Kind of run everyone's buzz, and I get done and look up, and my family's looking at me like, what just happened? We all came from church. But that was, the, that was the start of the shift that God created in my life because I began pursuing God, and I began saying, okay, God, I, I told my sister, I told my sister a week before, I was like, it's time, to, it's time to go back. It's time for me to return. But I told God, I said, I'm not going back to church until I know that I can do this 110%. I'm not half in. I'm not half out. I'm not going to struggle with this any longer. I'm going to, if I'm going to do it, then we're going to do it 110. So I worked a lot at the casino and the nights. I really couldn't get to church. So the first time my mom kept begging me to go to church, I agreed to go with her um, with a warning. Sort of the first person that touches me, I'm going to embarrass you. I promise you I'm going to embarrass you. They try to drag me to the altar, shake me to, to deliverance. We're having, I'm going to fight with them. So I walk into the place, and the first person I run into is who? God's like, oh, yeah, you, you will? <laughs> Here, let me introduce you to Darren. Um, and that was the first time I'd ever been. I remember um, being intrigued because I could feel the presence of God on him. I could feel the love of God on him. And I was, because what, we, what I felt was that I was going to go back and, and that same hate that I experienced when I left is what I was going to walk back into. That's a small town. Everybody knows everybody. 
he knew we, we were close to the same age we grew up in the same area they knew who i was we had done a lot of traveling and singing and the church that we went to in beaumont was pretty well known for their youth choir so they knew who i was i expected every every part of me expected a whiplash um but i can't describe the level of love that that came from him it was a long time before i met tamberly but god literally so because of the way i worked it was probably like a month a month and a half before i was able to get back to church going off the story that he's telling so it was probably like a month and a half before i was able to get back and the funny thing is is that when i walked back into that church he was there for the second time and had not been there since since that first time that we met um, when he walked up and he was like, hey, let me get your number. Let's go have coffee. And that turned into one of the most most intense relationships because he, there were so many times, it was one of the greatest physical representations of God I've ever seen. There were so many times he would text and we would go meet up knowing I had jacked up like nobody's business. And we all know Dyron hears from God, Okay. So when I got there, I already knew he knew what I was dealing with. And so I was like, here we go. I'm about to sit down and we're about to get it. And never once did he flinch. Never once did he show that he knew what was going on or that it made him uncomfortable. Um, so um, I began to heal. I'm looking for... Where am I? Excuse me. I'm almost done, guys. Um, I, st I started the healing process. Um, when Dyron moved up here, I came and visited at one point, and they, he, they all made an offer for me to come up here, move up here. And I didn't want to move. And I told God, I said, I need an answer. But here's what I'm asking you. I'm asking you to speak through someone who knows nothing, and I'm asking you to make it very clear. So that week I went to a revival and the pastor stopped the entire altar call and looked at me and said, I don't know who you are. I don't know where you came from. He said, but God said to tell you, you'll move or you won't make it. I just kind of went, yes, sir. He goes, no, son, you don't understand. So God said, you'll move or you won't make it. So when I moved here, the healing process began, but I didn't really understand. Um, healing and revelation began on deeper levels through pbj's wednesday night bible studies those moments are some of my most favorite he lays out the word and he shook everything that i thought i knew i remember i was still hurting i didn't understand how to become who god had created me to be i would limp to the platform each sunday still bleeding and hurting just desperate to feel him just to be with him because when he overshadowed me everything disappeared I didn't have those hurts. So recently, God deepened my healing process, and he spoke to me clearly, and he said, it's time for the breakthrough. Years of torment was finally coming to an end. But why did it take so long? Because my healing had to be built on him being the source of all things. A direct result of time spent with the master will eradicate every dark space. You see, the healing for me was him replacing and becoming what every cell of my being screamed for through the many years of torment. I cut myself in a graveyard of my history. 
I lived there and hated that I could see the gate from where I sat, but I didn't know how to get there. I think a lot of times people continue in their circumstances, not because they don't want it, but they don't know how to get where they need to be. They can see it with everything, when want it with everything within them, but they don't know how to get there. I learned that that gate is his presence. When you can become broken and cut and you get into his presence and just begin to experience him, those moments become life. They become the salve that he applies to gaping wounds. When I can get along with him and just talk. When I can just be with him. He works out trauma that has affected every area of your life. And your healing would be no different. What it is, he must be the source and the reason for your healing. You can't want to heal for an anointing. You can't want to heal for the healing. You can't want to heal for provision and not for gain. No other reason but just to be whole with him. Then he pours out his anointing oil. And as a result of his goodness and love, the strongest and best anointing in life is to be healed and open for him to move in a way that he can use you in any office or fashion that his desire. That is the strongest anointing. When you are healed and whole and God knows that any situation he puts you in, he can take you and flow through you freely. What is his desire? Isaiah 49 and 6 says that his salvation may extend throughout the earth. You want the healing to happen more than anything you can imagine. But try as we might in a myriad of different ways, you haven't found any solace. The solution is the source. It's in him. Because one breath can be the difference between being broken and being whole. But he desires that you want the healing for no other purpose than for him. Not for you. Not even so you aren't traumatized and guarded any longer. But when you desire the healing for him, then you begin to become whole. It's so he can have an unbroken place to dwell. So he can flow into any space and release himself into the world around you from any space in your life. So he can call, use what caused you to limp to heal those that are without hope. What he wants is a life that he can live through. Listen, I'm going to sit here and tell you because I know both pastors feel the same way because they treated me no less. I don't care what you've been through. 
I love you. And I pray his peace over you. I don't care what you've done. And I don't care what you've been involved in. I love you. And I see God in you. I don't care what you're battling with. I don't care what you fell prey to. And you can't seem to shake from your broken limbs. I love you. And I won't be the one to back away from you for fear of what I don't understand. Some of us have struggled long enough internally with things no one knows. And we've learned how to master living with shame. There's no doubt you did it. You lived right in the middle of it. And you were very much took part in all of it with much zeal. But remember when God spoke to Adam and Eve, when he found them in the garden, his question to them was, why did you hide? They said, we're ashamed because we were naked. God's response to them was, who told you you were naked? We spend so much time trying to find someone to speak over us and end the pain. Trying to find a substance or a being to mask the pain. For someone to just say, you're going to be okay. Someone just to simply say, I love you. I'm telling you tonight, I love you. And for all the times you weren't told, I believe in you. I don't care what was spoken over you. I don't care what you were called at a young age that shaped your thinking. I don't care what they said you wouldn't be and who they said you act just like. I don't where they said you would end up. I don't care what they said you would never be. God is saying tonight, who told you that is who you are? Because I didn't. God is asking you the question, who told you? Because I didn't. It's time to heal. I believe in you. I believe you have everything in you that it takes to live again. You will genuinely smile again. And every broken place you've guarded for so long is going to be a place from which God will release himself in more beautiful and powerful ways than you can even imagine. I want to hear the voice of God over you and speak life to that. Yes, you're weary. Yeah, it's heavy. But he is the God that healeth thee. I'm not perfect. I still walk through places of healing every minute of every day, but his love and his goodness to me has revealed the beautiful place of healing more times than I can count. And if I can be the vessel that he flows through so that the trauma and torment ends in one person's life, that's enough for me. It's time for the trauma to end. You cannot mask any longer what you've hidden in the shadows. The calling that God has placed over your life is still there. It's far too great. The world needs to hear what you have to say. 
So today I say the shame ends. And I say restoration begins. You will doubtless recover all. The things that the enemy took and locked away and made you believe that you would never be what they said you could be is a lie from the pit of hell. So today we speak life. Father, I thank you for every opportunity you've given us. I speak life. To every broken place, God, I speak healing. To every traumatic event that has tormented the minds of your people, I speak silence. I command the enemy to shut its mouth. You will feed no more, God. And I ask that you break the teeth of your en the enemy. God, let your presence begin to heal. Let your presence begin to heal, God. every head bowed and every eye closed can we just continue in that vein for a moment God is using his vessel to speak prophetically into your life just lift your hands it doesn't matter what you're battling there are things that are secret battles that God wants to heal right now that they are never brought into the light because he will cover you and he will heal you. He is not here to demoralize you any more than he wanted to demoralize Adam and Eve. He walked around and pretended he did not even know where they were, although surely he did. But he pretended to look for them, to search for them, to give them time to hide, to give them time to think that they were hiding from his sovereignty. And he did that in his kindness because he did not come thundering upon the scene to rip something back and expose and embarrass and demoralize. But he came to cover. He came to remit. He came to restore. He came to tell you tonight, you never have to live under the weight of this pain and addiction another day. But now you can be free by the power of the name Jesus, by the authority of the word of the living God. You can be free now and forever from this day forward, never to be the same again because his grace is in this house in abundance because where sin abounds, grace does that much more abound and his grace is in this house for every secret sin. We're not going to ask you to come running down to the front. We're just going to ask you to surrender right now anywhere you find yourself. In this room or online, you just drop. You surrender. You cry out to him. And his angels, his warring angels are in this house right now to do warfare on behalf of his people. You can have any addiction. It does not matter. But the two things, the two spirits that the Lord God is going to crush 
by the power of his blood and the word of this testimony are the spirit of bondage and the spirit of addiction. If you are struggling with those two things, and it can be anything on this earth that you are bound by or addicted to, I want you to lift your hands right now. Lift them. Hunger to get out of the darkness. Just lift your hands and surrender, and God is going to meet you where you are. He is dispatching angels to be sent to you now where you are. You shall be free by the authority of the word of God and the power of the name Jesus. You are free now for his glory. He has released you. He has silenced the enemy. He has defeated him forever. He has crushed the enemy by the power of his might. And we command every lying spirit to leave this house now by the authority of the word of God and by the power of his anointing that is upon me by his grace. I command every deceiving spirit and every lying spirit to leave and I command its influence to die right now by the word of the Lord, by the anointing of his spirit. You are free Never do you have to struggle with it again. Never do you have to fight this fight again. But the Lord says you're free. Satan, the Lord rebukes you. God declares you free. Not a man. God declares you free. Now and forever. By the glory of his name. Oh, somebody receive it in the name of Jesus. Don't you let anything or anybody talk you out of what God is doing and creating in your life. It doesn't matter what anybody's told you. Jesus doesn't do labels like we do labels in the West. The only label on you is daughter. The only label on you is son. Just receive that. That is your status. You are a daughter of God. You're a son of God. He's here to deliver. Things you fought in the darkness. Things you've grappled with that nobody knows. You will receive freedom from his presence. Because of the faith that is released in this house right now. Because of the blood of the lamb and the word of his testimony. Remember the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. The testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. When he sent me to him. He did not send me to him to tell me what I felt was upon him. He sent me to him to tell him what God was thinking over him. It doesn't take spiritual gifts to tell somebody what's wrong with them. They know what's wrong with them. It doesn't take spiritual gifts to tell them the pain they're in. They know the pain they're in. But to see the gold amongst the pain. For God to show you the goodness that is in somebody. It's no different than my pastor. 
Nathan Scoggins, when I was a 16-year-old kid, walking to the back of a camp meeting and finding me sitting just like this because I ain't going to look up because I ain't no hypocrite. I'm not going to the altar because I ain't no hypocrite. That was in my mind. Because I knew I'm stoned right now in this service. I'm stoned. And so he came all the way back there to me. And he leaned into me. And he said, Dyron, do you know why the devil fights you? He said, because God's greatness is inside of you. And he said, you're laden with talent. And the devil wants to sift you like wheat. But God wants to use you. And God has a plan for your life. In the midst of darkness, with drugs in my system, in that service, he did not worry about that. Surely he could smell it upon my clothing. Surely he could see the bloodshot eyes that he was looking into and the glassy-eyed stone teenager that was standing before him. But he didn't say anything about that. He said, God's anointing is upon you. God has shown me in his love what he wants to do with your life. I see what the devil's doing, but I'm going to speak to what God is doing. That's the heartbeat of the prophetic. To call out the gold and the good and speak life and light into death, dryness, and darkness. That is prophetic ministry. Not just prognosticating and predicting future events. That's the heartbeat of the prophetic right there. To say what God is going to do. To connect them to that. That's what this is about. I know the hour is late. We're going to come to a close, but I want you to understand something. When we sit in the presence of other sin and we act afraid, intimidated, disgusted, or too good for them, we are in error. Grievous, self-righteous laden error. Because what we're saying is we're better than you. Forgetting the pit he found me in. We're saying I'm better than you. I'm disgusted by your sin. Well, God's disgusted by your self-righteousness. It's more disgusting than their sin. In the nostrils of God it is. It's repulsive unto him. Because when we do that, we fail to connect them to hope. Never leave someone hopeless. Satan alone is hopeless. Fallen angels alone are hopeless. Always connect them to hope. I wanted him to know what God was saying over his life. So God said, tell him he has transcendent talent. Tell him that he will stand before conference floors and share this story. And I will bring people out of darkness that have been in darkness for decades Tell him his story will be a weapon in my hand and I will slay the darkness and the pain that the enemy has inflicted on people's lives and I will bring healing because his story and his worship is a weapon in the hand of God. Corey, this was the first time you shared it publicly, but it will not be the last. He's already shown me he's going to conferences and he's going to breakout groups 
where people are too scared to talk about this stuff. But we look like fools when we have fear in the face of sin. Be strong and be full of grace and be full of hope and be full of love because all they need to know is that there is hope for their life. Hope for their situation. And when I act afraid and I act, I'm disgusted. The people that walked out of restaurants because he walked in will answer to God for what they did if they haven't repented. And I would have had to repent had I been there for what I would have done to them physically. Because that's not Christian and that's certainly not apostolic and it's certainly not kingdom culture. You love people and you leave them on hope, not hopelessness. That's why sinners love to eat with Jesus. Because they knew he didn't approve of what they did. But yet all they felt was love. He knew I didn't approve of his lifestyle when we met. But you know what else he knew? I wasn't afraid to meet with him, just he and I, in a public place, over and over and over again. Didn't bother me a bit. Because the only thing I wanted him to feel was love and hope. And I wanted him to know what God was speaking over him. He will share this overseas. He will share it in Asia. And he will share it domestically in the United States of America. And if I were the devil, I'd be terrified. Because this man's story is a weapon in the hand of God. A weapon in a nail-scarred hand. That's what a testimony is. That's what a testimony becomes. Oh, can you clap your hands all over this house? 